O God in heaven, You have spoken every day in the past. You've spoken as You created the world. You've spoken through Your Word, through Your prophets, through Your servants. Oh God, would You speak now and give us the hearts to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sports Christianity. And by that I don't mean sports and Christianity. I mean the brand of Christianity that exists particularly in the realm of sports has come into the national spotlight yet again. And if you're not a sports person, that's right, bear bear with me, it'll be clear in a second. Made it into the national spotlight this week for a number of reasons. One, for those of you that enjoy celebrity gossip a bit more than most, the uh, Tim Tebow. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Got engaged this week, created all kinds of kerfuffle, all kinds of turmoil. The man who's been proclaiming God's favor for himself for the last, I don't know, 15 years in the public spotlight got engaged this week to Miss Universe. I'm not making that up. To Miss Universe, 2017 Miss Universe. So, oh yeah, of course, all the guys are jealous of him. And he gave her a seven and a half carat flawless diamond ring. So all the girls are jealous, too, because the thing is about the size of a you know, jawbreaker. The thing's huge. Mr. Sports Christianity himself, seeing all of his proclamations of God's favor coming to him with a massive ring and Miss Universe herself. Also came into the spotlight this last week with a national championship in college football. Some of you cared about that. Some of you didn't. It's fine. doesn't matter either way. Some of you cheered for Alabama, at least one person in the room. Some of you cheered for Clemson. Again, doesn't matter either way. (laughs) But the big challenge on that one was, what do we do? Who is Jesus cheering for? Because both quarterbacks are committed Christians, or at least so they say. To the point where in the middle of the game you can see one of the quarterbacks getting ready to call plays and has Bible verses written outside of his arms, all of them proclaiming God's favor on him. Much like we talked about in Sunday school. Which then begs the question, did did Jesus like one team more? Does his favor change year after year? Because we've had these teams winning back to back to back, and at least a number of them are Christians. Did one of them quote better Bible verses than the other? That God will show favor to me in Galatians chapter 6. My Galatians 6 beats your Jeremiah 29. I win the national championship. It came into the spotlight last Sunday. Which, if you watched, or Saturday, whichever one, you watched playoff football, and you got to watch the Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears harder than the Chicago Bears, even normally Chicago Bears. They failed terribly. As in an opportunity to win their playoff game and advance in, their place kicker, who is a very outspoken and devout Christian, hit the goalpost not once, but twice in the same kick to miss it. It was the sixth and seventh times he had hit the goalposts in football this season alone. 
which the cameras cut away quickly so you didn't get to see, but he did something pretty staggering after he hit it. He hit the post, which then dropped and hit the crossbar and then bounced out. And his teammate walked by and kind of gave him encouragement. And then he immediately gave glory to the Lord that he missed. I was like, oh, finally. Finally, somebody gets sports Christianity. I call it sports Christianity because so much of sports Christianity is simply quoting the Bible verses that say God will bless you and you will win. Quote the victory in Jesus ones. I've seen the the teams that actually pray the Lord's Prayer before games as some sort of kind of like holy mantra to try to protect their players and give them victory. Maybe if we say the Lord's Prayer more than the other team, God will give us victory over those villainous evil guys that I hate for the next two hours, but then they're my buddies when I go pro in ten minutes after the game. What do we do when we hit the crossbar and the post, and miss. What do we do when we lose? Does God not like us anymore? Is he mad at us? Does he dislike the Chicago Bears as much as we dislike the Chicago Bears? Maybe, I don't know. It begs a question when we come to passages like this, because here you have God's people and God's men. Moses, Aaron, Israel, by and large, failing hard. Israel's been taken down to Egypt, and as they've gotten to Egypt, it's been initially very successful. Their birth rate spikes. Their life expectancy, as best we can tell, is uh, quite long. And Again, as best we can tell by modern archaeology, the life expectancy of Israel is probably one and a half to two times as long as Egypt's. It's shocking. Their population explodes. Maybe they're quoting the happy verses. Then Pharaoh changes, Joseph dies, and it all goes to pot after that. And you get this one guy show up who we think, ooh, he's the special one. He's noted as being a handsome baby, having God's favor on him from the very beginning. And then he goes and kills somebody and flees out to the middle of nowhere and lives in the boonies for four decades. Great. God gets his attention using a burning bush, direct contact, And this guy, the great hope for Israel, the great hero who we're going to think is going to save the day, argues and argues and argues. And when he's not arguing, he's being a coward. Great again. Until finally, the Lord says, in essence, stop talking, go. And he does. And here we have in chapter 5, his first interaction with Pharaoh. It doesn't go exactly the way that maybe it might have been planned. It certainly doesn't go the way that Moses might have expected. He's been told to take the elders of Israel with him, and he's been told to say the exact words of God. He does neither. He doesn't take the elders with him. He goes with just his brother, and instead of saying the exact words of God, he paraphrases. But okay, we can get past that. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, thus says the God of the Bible, this is what the true, the real, the living God, the creator God says. He is the God of Israel and he says to Pharaoh, 
And again, some of you here, Yul Brenner, Yul Brenner, the Pharaoh, whatever. Let my people go. Let them go so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And again, we hear that and kind of go, well, that's an odd request. And uh, it, it actually is very common in the ancient Near East. They, one did things very indirectly, very, uh, quite commonly. We also, weirdly enough, have it documented in this time in uh, Egypt's history that uh, even slaves were given days off to go worship their own gods. It's very interesting that they had permission to do this. This would have been a very normal request and a very normal occurrence. Yet Pharaoh's response is not normal. It's interesting he doesn't give a, I don't think this is a good idea right now. He doesn't think, well, we just can't afford for you guys to be gone for a couple days. He doesn't even give like the hard no. His response is a bit more aggressive, a bit shocking. Verse 2, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? In fact, actually, the rest of the time he refuses to use his name. He only calls him generic God, refuses to call him by his proper name that has been introduced here. He despises this God. Who is this God? Who is the Lord that I should even obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Dot, 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 injected our translation. I don't care about the Lord. I'm not going to let Israel go. Passages like this are extremely important in the larger context of the scriptures and extremely important in the context of American Christianity. American Christianity has been infected by one of the great heresies of all time, perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, which is the idea that God always wants me to be financially successful, that God is supremely concerned about my happiness. He's supremely concerned about my wealth. He's supremely concerned about my success. Just yesterday, one of America's most famous pastors tweeted, and it was about God's favor, and you're thinking, oh, he's going to get the gospel right. And he's like, if you pursue that favor, oh, trust me, God will give you that promotion. It's like, oh, you started so good and ended so bad. So much of American Christianity has been infected by this idea that God wants me to be happy. It's his big concern. I mean, you have to ask what his Christmas list is. Number one is he wants Michael to be happy. And you get to passages like this and you go, oh man, what do I do with this? Here's a guy who for no reason that has been indicated to us quite yet, hates God. And again, in America, we've been raised at this point, most of us in the room at least, and if you're younger or have less gray hair than I do, you've been raised that everybody's nice and everybody's good and everybody's kind. And the reason being is because the heart of, the true heart of liberalism, and I do not mean liberal politics or the Democratic Party, I'm not talking one party or the other, I'm talking enlightenmental liberal thought. The true heart of it is to deny the existence of evil. 
Which is why the, the school of thought that, that begins to cultivate around that produces all kinds of neat things that says, you know what, kids come out good. It's parents that corrupt them. Obviously, the people who argued that did not have children or they did not raise them. <laughs> or they say things like, well, all people are good. It's society that corrupts them. Cool. Don't ever let the kids out of the house. See how it goes for you. <laughs> you let me know how long it takes before you want to revise your opinion. It's a true denial of the existence of evil. Again, so much of, again, I'm touching in on politics and culture in America as a whole, watching how our culture wants to say everybody's nice and everybody's good and we can let everybody play because everybody is equal in being good and righteous and kind and nice people. And we get passages like this where Moses and Aaron make on the surface a reasonable request and Pharaoh responds with unreasonable hatred. The first thing, we're going to see kind of three movements here. The first thing to see is it should be no surprise that pagans hate God. It should be no surprise that pagans hate God. If we wanted to put this in postmodern language, we would say haters are going to hate It's the nature of who they are and how they are. Yes, I know, that's ironic and tongue-in-cheek. You can enjoy the awkwardness, it's fun. Why is it that Pharaoh responds the way that Pharaoh does? He's responding out of his nature. He is a creature of hate. And so when it comes time for the Lord God to address him, how does he respond? He responds with hate. And you say, well, Michael, that's not nice. I know. It's the scriptures that way it speaks about people all along as it says after the fall, after sin corrupts the person, it corrupts all of the person. It doesn't leave love untouched. It doesn't leave the affections untouched. It doesn't leave desires untouched. Sin comes in and corrupts the entirety of the person so that everything that proceeds from out of the heart of the unredeemed person, man or woman, is contaminated by sin. So that unredeemed love is actually self-love. It's an attempt to self-aggrandize. It's an attempt to find meaning. It's an attempt to find identity, to find value. It's manipulative and conniving. That's why disagreements become vehicles for hate. Again, think about just how our culture talks today. Disagreements become vehicles for hate because it's all about me. It's all about the self. It's all about what can I get out of this situation? What can I help myself with? What can I get for me even at your expense? The best kind of hate is the kind that makes it look like you're actually being kind. The kind that makes it look like you actually want to help the person, but in reality, you're not. This is the story of humanity. 
It should be no surprise that the unredeemed person hates the Lord because they are creatures of hate. Romans 1, 18 through really the end of the chapter, but middle of 22, so explains this so clearly. That God has made the world and in the way that he has made humans, humans are in his image and therefore know who he is. That knowledge is not always the most well-informed. It's not always the clearest picture, but everybody knows his existence. And so when that fall takes place and that sin takes root in the human heart, it takes root in the form of a hatred of God because it's a knowledge of God that all people have. Pharaoh hates God. That's the background of the story, and it's that uncomfortable truth that makes sense of the rest of the book. We talk about this in reform circles. We say, well, we, I believe I'm a, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I believe in the five points of Calvinism. If you remember what those are, those are what that is, is you know, the five kind of key buzzwords that help us understand not what Calvinism is. It helps us understand uh, the Calvinist understanding of salvation. And sometimes you'll run into people that are like, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist, which is inconsistent. Or three-and-a-half-point, or two-and-a-half-point, or if I'm at a one-and-a-half-point, at which point I would say, I would lovingly say, you're not one, and that's okay, I'm not mad at you. But I've said for years in ministry now that the one that is always the hardest of these five points is not the idea that the Lord Jesus' blood is applied only to His own. It's not the idea that all of God's creatures, all of His people will make it to the end. They will persevere. It's not the idea that the Lord is sovereign over salvation and His people can't even turn back. It's the first one. The T is always the hardest. To admit that there are bad people that deserve what they get. Some of you are uncomfortable just even the way I said that, aren't you? Don't lie, I know. I'm uncomfortable the way I said it. <laughs> there are bad people that deserve what they get. And we go, well, oh, yes, I mean, I mean, I know, I know there are bad people that deserve what they get. Obviously, like the guy uh, last two weeks ago that tried to rob the lady not knowing that she was a, uh, an MMA superstar. And she, uh, two punches and one kick, sent him into a coma and into the hospital, <laughs> missing most of his face. That one, we kind of go, well, yeah, obviously he's a bad guy. He deserves what he gets. And we chuckle about it. Or the one in, uh, I think it was North Carolina, where uh, the guy tried to rob the lady and she kind of chased him while he's running away with her purse and he ducked into a, a store to try to get away from her, not paying attention that it was a karate dojo and they <laughs> beat him senseless. We, we have easy times emotionally with those going, well, obviously that's a bad person and obviously they deserve what they got because they were being bad and I understand that. But it is intriguing and again, maybe y'all are just... Better theologians than I am. But it's intriguing emotionally how difficult it is to say there are bad people that deserve what they get. Because the reality of the matter is the scriptures say that all people are bad people that deserve what they get. 
In fact, actually, the only people that weren't bad people that deserve what they got were Adam and Eve when they first started. And then they chose to be bad people that deserve what they got. And then the Lord Jesus, who's never been bad and never will be. There are bad people that deserve what they get. And apart from Jesus, you're a bad person. You're a bad person. You will deserve everything that you get. It's important that we have that backdrop when we come to the story of Pharaoh. It's important we have that backdrop when we come to the story of Egypt because God's about to do very difficult things. And if you don't understand it, you end up the same place that Moses is. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing what seems to be evil from my perspective? If you don't have the category of, look, people are sinful. They deserve every bit of bad that they get. But I'm an American. I think everybody's good. You're wrong. Yeah, I know. We made it through two verses. We'll keep going. That awkward, uncomfortable start that all people have sinned, we'll put it a different way, put it on that lower shelf for us all. Everybody's a bad person and everybody deserves judgment. Everybody deserves bad. Pharaoh gives his response, who is God? I don't even care. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I'm not going to obey him. I don't care. Then they respond with, this is really a bit of an interesting one. Look, this God that you won't even acknowledge, he's already met with us. And he's told us to go out to worship him. And we're afraid that if we don't, he's going to judge us. With specifically things that are about to be dumped on you in a couple of chapters, but okay. Verse 4, the king of Egypt responds, Moses and Aaron, (laughs) why do you take them away from their work? Go work. This is interesting because Moses and Aaron have not been working prior to this point, at least as we understand in the story. And they ask Pharaoh to let them go. And Pharaoh's response to them is, you need to stop talking and go make bricks. I see your lips moving and they shouldn't be. Your hands should be. Get out of my face and go make bricks. Verse 5, behold, the people of the land. Now, this is really interesting. He gives his explanation for a little bit as to why he's going to respond the way that he does. He begins by bragging. Look, look how many slaves I have. The people of Israel are many. They're all over the land. I own an entire nation in slavery. And the more you talk, the less they work. So shut up. Leave and go serve me. He's not a nice man. He's not a good man. He's a bad man who's going to deserve what he gets. He then does something I would say that's even a bit more shocking because it's contradictory to what he's just done. He's just bragged and boasted about how much uh, money he makes off of Israel, how great and powerful he is. He's just boasted about how they need to be working so that the economy will continue to function. And then he immediately penalizes them and penalizes them severely. I don't understand exactly how all of the details of this work, but somehow uh, the uh, arrangement was like this. Pharaoh ruled everything. 
his building industry needed lots of bricks. So they had Egyptians that ran the brick building industry. Those Egyptians had picked out particularly traitorous Israelites to become the middleman to then micromanage the Israelites so that you had the Egyptian taskmasters, the Israelite foremen, and then the Israelites. At some point along those top two tiers, straw was collected. They used that straw so that it could be mixed with the clay from the river. It could be used to strengthen and shore up the bricks so they could bake and then build with them. It made it easier work because the more straw you added, the more the clay could be broken up. Have you ever tried to dig in your backyard here in the middle of summer? It's terrible. Now think about trying to take that and stir it with sand. Awful. You mix straw and it makes it a little bit easier as it breaks the clay up. But here, Pharaoh's command is that the straw be taken away. And by that, I don't think the command is that, that the Egyptian uh, taskmasters stopped gathering it. They were gathering it and giving it to Israel. That, that's not what happens. I suspect the bigger command is that whatever that straw was that was being gathered and then given to Israel is now gathered and either destroyed or given to someone else. See, what he's doing here is not just making it slightly harder. You have to have straw to make bricks. But suddenly, there's no straw available. Notice what it says. Israel then scatters throughout the land looking for straw. Some people that were baking bricks yesterday or stirring clay yesterday now have to go out on these long-ranging travels to find straw to bring back so that you poor saps that were yesterday making bricks with all of our help suddenly have to do all of the rest of it by yourself. I mean, think of it from this perspective. If all of us were making bricks yesterday, suddenly all of y'all go looking for straw and all of y'all have to cover the work for the entire room. That's massive. That's cruel. It's hateful. But why is he punishing Israel? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, it makes sense. First, it should be no surprise that Pharaoh hates God because unbelievers will hate God. Second, it should be no surprise that unbelievers hate Christians because they see them as synonymous. Now, it's interesting, we don't see ourselves this way. I mean, we don't think of, I want to see what God looks like and then look around at each other. I think that's actually a good theological, proper understanding of the scriptures. You want to see what God is like, go look at each other. Go talk to each other. Go love on one another. Encourage one another. But it's interesting how the scriptures are abundantly clear how uh, pagans particularly will see the connection between God and his people far more intimately and far more closely than we oftentimes even do ourselves. I mean, think about first sermon we have recorded from Jesus. He begins, blessed are poor. You know, it goes the Beatitudes. How does it build to? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. For so they did to the prophets before you, they're going to do to you now. John, which includes so much of Jesus teaching, this is a reoccurring theme. We have it in John 15, one of the most beautiful sections on Jesus teaching where he says, look, when they interact with you, they're going to hate you because they hate me.
It's no surprise. Paul says it slightly differently, but saying it's the aroma. It's the aroma of Christ to some. It's the aroma of death to others. It should be no surprise that unbelievers hate us. And the reason is because they hate our God. Now, you guys maybe not get to see this quite as clearly as I do. Because y'all have normal jobs. I don't have a normal job. And so I get to live stories that most of you don't get to live. And some of that is a really good thing. Some of that is not quite as encouraging. But I cannot tell you the number of times that I've been at a party. Nikki watched this one one time a couple years ago. It's one of the funniest things we've ever seen. Group of like eight or ten people standing there. So it's just a big party, social gathering. People my own age dress the same way as me, look in the same way as me. People just like me, except they don't know God. I walk over with my Coke in my hand and we're talking and somebody's like, oh, what do you do? I'm a minister. Excuse me, I have to be somewhere else. And I'm not kidding when I say all 10 people scatter and I'm left standing with my Coke in the middle. Like, oh, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. Nikki's across the room giggling because she can see. Y'all don't always see it because, again, people think that you're normal. But they know I'm the minister. It's always funny, too. You, somebody finds out I'm a pastor, they start confessing their sins they did 30 years ago. I don't want to know this. I don't want to know this. This is, this is not my business. But they understand, don't they? They understand. Or when I'm out somewhere and hanging out with some other folks and they've been swearing like you would not believe. And they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm thinking in my head, it's about to get awkward. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. Well, God heard you. (laughs) It's no surprise when pagans hate. It's no surprise that they hate God. It's no surprise that they hate us. Unfortunately, the story doesn't stop there. I wish it did. I wish Exodus 5 ended there, but it doesn't. Pharaoh punishes Israel and it gets worse and Moses tells the story like it kind of accelerates through time. It it goes through a matter of weeks without really kind of telling us. He he catches us up on some of the consequences. Uh, Verse 10, the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen of the people go out and they begin to have conversations and it does not go well. The Egyptian taskmasters say you have to produce the same amount of stuff. And the Israelite foremen are like, are you serious? We can't. And the Egyptians are like, I don't care. The Israelites are like, but you should. And the Egyptians are like, I don't care. And so what happens is, of course, the number of bricks produced drops. And as it drops, punishment increases. And the Egyptian foremen begin to beat the Israelite Foreman. Sorry, the Egyptian taskmasters begin to beat the Israelite foreman. In verse 15 is where you would think, oh, finally, the right solution. The foreman of the people of Israel came, and you heard how I read it if you caught it, and they cried out, oh, yes! 
to Pharaoh, no! You see, what's actually happened is the foremen are actually traitors to Israel. So when it comes time for them to seek help, they seek help from the pagan man. They go to Pharaoh himself and say, why do you treat your servants this way? Why do you treat the people that are on your side like this? We're helping you. Look, we've turned traitor to our own people. We're the ones forcing them into labor. Why do you punish us? If you've got to beat somebody, beat them, not me. Behold, your servants are beaten, <laughs> but the fault's in your own people. And Pharaoh responds, you're lazy, you're lazy, shut your face, go work. Still not changing. And as they walk out, this had to have been an interesting conversation, as they walk out, uh, verse 20, they meet Moses and Aaron. That word meet in the Hebrew uh, is oftentimes used for, hey, we ran into each other, and other times it was, hey, my fist ran into your face. That's the way that verb is oftentimes used. I think it's used on purpose here. They met Moses and Aaron. Maybe not fisticuffs, but it's certainly an unpleasant conversation. And what do they do? I mean, this sentence is amazing. The Lord look at you and judge. How dare you, Moses? How dare you, Aaron? This is your fault because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. It's all your fault. They're trying to kill us and it's all your fault. The reason why I say I, I in many ways wish the story ended here is because you see a third category of hatred introduced. It's by those who profess to be good guys, but actually turn out to be bad guys. You see, these are Israelites. These are the Israelites that should be saying, Moses, Aaron, thank you for standing up to the scariest man on planet Earth. We know God will protect you. These are the guys that are like, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to try to help you out. We're going to do as best we can with the bricks. We're going to try to make the solution as best. We These are the guys that should have been like Moses. I can't believe you even stood up to, to Pharaoh in the first place. But instead, what is it? How dare you, Moses? How dare you, Aaron? How dare you? It's all your fault. This is extremely important for us to understand in the American church today again because we like to be nice. Oh my, we like to be nice. And we like to show people the benefit of the doubt as long as they haven't hurt us personally. And we really don't like to consider the category of people who say they're Christians but aren't. People who say they belong to the living and true God, but they aren't. People who say they're one of us, but they aren't. You see, the problem with that is not having that category built into how we think about the church. It means we instantly trust everybody. It means we instantly listen to everybody. It means we instantly are willing to give credence to everybody and we don't process carefully. 
We don't become like the Bereans where it says they check everything out. They go back to the scriptures and look it up. Why do you not go back and look it up? Is when you trust everybody always, all the time. Instead of being, we'll say, a healthy amount of cautious. What on earth do we do with this? (laughs) How do I apply this? I got three categories of people. I don't like any of them. Right? I got pagans that hate God because they are creatures of hate. I have pagans that hate me because I'm related to the living God. I don't like that. And I have people who've said that they were Christians and they turn out not to be and they hate me too. I don't like any of those categories. Well, one is to know there is a solution and his name is Jesus. The solution is uh, not to just say, hey, why don't we just get along? The solution is not, if we can just learn to speak about politics in a more civil fashion, we'll all be okay. The solution isn't if we can just get one political party into power or out of power, I don't care which one it is. The solution to hatred is Christ and Christ alone. And the reason is because of how he solves it. He's going to himself solve it one of two ways. Either he comes in and defeats the person from the inside out. This person of hate, this person, we call them bad people, the ones who deserve everything they get. Jesus either comes in from the inside and takes out that heart of stone, takes that broken, bad record, takes all of the guilt that is theirs, removes that and gives them righteousness instead. Or he destroys them. But either way, the prerogative to decide that is not mine, and it's not yours. You see, that's actually what's going to be Pharaoh's path, as we know. He's going to fight God. We have a good story, a good song about that, right? I fought the law, and the law won. I fought God. It did not go well. You could really call that the book of Exodus. I fought God, and it did not go well. Jesus will win and he will conquer, but it is imperative that we understand as God's creatures that he wins both ways. It's not just one. He wins either through coming in and transforming the people of God and taking that creature of wrath and making him into a creature of life, or he glorifies himself in his wrath perfectly forever. In their destruction. Secondly, it's important for us to understand God works in difficult circumstances all of the time. This is one of the things that I love, again, I kind of poke about with the sports Christianity, to think that God wants us to win all of the time and to reduce our victories solely to how did my sports team perform on the field, rink, court, whatever. As if God is as concerned with your win-loss record as he is with your holiness. God uses difficult circumstances all of the time. And unfortunately, so much of this brand of Christianity uh, in American Christianity has produced the, the same advice that Job's friends give. Well, you're in bad circumstances. Well, let's God be your fault. What are you doing wrong? Are you an idiot? What are you doing? Are you sinning? What are you doing? It's obviously your fault. 
that's that's amazing. As best I know, almost all of the prophets ended very badly. I would suggest they were being wonderfully obedient. God uses difficult circumstances all of the time for good ends. And then one last point, and this is one that maybe doesn't apply quite as much now, but sadly I think is applying more and more and more and more by the day. God uses difficulty to cleanse his church. You can be a church historian. You don't have to be a particularly brilliant one. To understand the church has always grown the most in the greatest difficulty. The church has always grown the most when she was dying for it. It's why, where is the church growing the most rapidly right now? China. Why? Because they disappear after they get converted. You get whole churches arrested three weeks ago. The Lord uses difficulty to cleanse his church, to make her lovely, to make her beautiful, to make her holy, to burn off the dross and the dregs. And I would say maybe that's important for us to remember because I suspect the American church right now, we haven't had good cleansing in a long time. A long time. And of course, I don't want to see it in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime. But to not be surprised when the Lord uses the same method he's used for thousands of years to cleanse his church. And to not be discouraged by the difficulty. Because the Lord uses difficult circumstances to do amazing things. Chapter 5 is a really awful chapter. I mean, it's unpleasant. It's terrible. It's terrible. But you realize without chapter 5, you don't get a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. You don't get a Red Sea that eats the largest army on planet Earth. You don't get 10 plagues that are amazing. You don't get all kinds of just fantastic and true and glorious stories without the backdrop of a bad man that hates God and is going to lose May it be that our Christianity as we understand it and seek to be as biblical as possible, may it be that we are as balanced as the Bible is balanced and have the categories that Scripture includes. So we're not surprised when difficulty hits. So we're not caught off guard when our sports team loses. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name. Thank you that Jesus changes hearts. And thank you that he changes hearts of bad people that don't deserve it. If we waited to deserve salvation, oh, it would never come. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.